Hello, hello, lovely listeners. All of you ghouls and goblins. And everything in between. Welcome to Across the Veil with Zelda and Emma. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. So today I'm really excited. I'm going to be chatting with Emma and Zelda from Across the Veil, and we're going to be discussing The Exorcist. Welcome to the show, ladies. So good to be here. Thanks for having us on. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. We figured this was the best group of women who like spooky things to talk about a spooky lady in The Exorcist. Yes. Yeah, she's the spookiest of all spooky ladies. I think one of no the... No one's m- ever been spookier. No, one of the most <laughs> iconic well. horror characters. Yeah. <laughs> she's got us beat by many years. I can only like strive to be that horrifying. I can, yeah, I consider myself a pretty spooky looking person and like... Although, like, I feel like I can pair, like, in the morning when I get out of bed. But otherwise, she's got me beat. Like, I can't yeah. beat that green vomit. Yeah, and the whole, you know, crucifix, you know, masturbation scene and the scratching of the face. That is some spooky shit that nobody, nobody really wants to get into. No, no, yeah. no, no. I think that was actually one of the scenes, because I've only seen the movie recently, and I've heard about it in pop culture because you hear about, oh, crucifixion, masturbation. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it happens in the movie. And people were freaked out. Even in modern times, watching that scene freaked me out. I was like, oh, my God, they went there. I didn't that realize quite changer, how far yeah. they took it. Yeah. And it's like it's a sharp crucifix, too. And it's like you can almost hear like a slicing sound. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so graphic, even by today's standards. Yeah, it's just, it, it's one of those, like, you just feel your entire body just go, oh. It's not and something you want to watch on film. Like, that's what's so viscerally uncomfortable, is that we're just not used to And yet that. I've seen the movie, like, five times. <laughs> yeah, it's just for those of you listening who don't know, Emma's the expert on The Exorcist. <laughs> you what, read, I, the, read the book multiple times, seen the movie five times? Yes, and I watched the TV show. Never seen the TV I show. I believe I'm one of like six people in the world who watched the Fox TV show, The Exorcist. <laughs> and let me say, recommendation. The first season, amazing. The second season, heartbreaking. It's good. It's a great show. What is there to get a second season out of? Well, I don't want to spoil it. I actually don't know how to talk about it without spoiling it too much. But it is, it's like, it's a slight retelling of The Exorcist in modern times. Again, like circling around a young girl possessed and a priest who's kind of losing his faith with a more experienced exorcist priest guiding him. But the characters are all completely different. I'll have to but check it out. Definitely do. It's it's really good. And it's got some good scares, it's got good acting. So do we want to talk a little bit before we get into the whole movie, a little bit of the backstory behind The Exorcist? So sure. It's based on the story of this this kid, 14 years old. His name was Roland or Robbie. He goes, there's both. And mm-hmm. he was supposedly possessed by spirits. And the whole story for the exorcist, like the Ouija board thing was true. Apparently his aunt did buy him a Ouija board and that's how the spirits got in. But he wasn't treated at a home. He basically went through this exorcism at Georgetown Hospital. And there was, I think, 48 people who witnessed this exorcism. It was pretty intense. And the room after the exorcism was boarded up and never used again. And apparently when they did a fire to basically destroy the building, they were going to build something else. Everything kind of had demolished or gone to the ground except for that room. And 
I, I listened to this podcast called Inside the Exorcist and they talked about how the furniture for that room was basically sold to, I think it was like kind of an assisted living facility and it was still haunted. Like the place where that furniture went, it was creepy and nobody ever wanted to go. I wouldn't have wanted to go. That does not seem like a fun place for a vacation. Mm-mm. No, definitely not. Do you, do either of you know the story of how like Ellen Burstyn and uh, Linda Blair got attached to the script or got attached to the movie? I know that with Linda Blair, there was something like 500 some actresses auditioned, but a lot of them like uh, Janie Lynn Curtis, mm-hmm. uh, she wanted to audition, but then her mom said no, because there are a lot of parents being like, I don't want my child to be saying these horrible, horrible things. <laughs> Uh, the little um, girl who was Veruca Salt in the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was their number one pick. And mm-hmm. then her parents were like, absolutely not. You can be blueberry woman, but you cannot masturbate with a crucifix. <laughs> that, that's the line. That's the that's line. Where, that's the where you draw the line. Yeah. But I heard that. I read that Linda Blair was like the only child that they could really find who could handle the source material because she was able to separate herself from it. Yeah. William Friedkin said that of all the kids that he saw, she was kind of the last one he'd given up hope. Nobody could pull this off and they couldn't Mm -hmm. handle this whole idea. But Linda viewed it as a game. He said she was cute, but not too pretty. She had this like level. She was mischievous, he said. And there was an intelligence to her. So she was able to pull this off in a way that I think most child actors would seem kind of disingenuous. But she did such a fantastic job and his support of Linda Blair would later be controversial because he didn't give Mercedes McCambridge a credit on the mm-hmm. script for mm-hmm. her role when she voiced Pazuzu the demon. And so that was a huge thing. But also Linda Standin, who when she was possessed, there was probably, I think, only like 30 seconds of the movie that Standin was there, but they took that to court. And so I think it cost Linda Blair an Oscar because yeah, she did. Yeah, and that stand-in was Eileen Dietz, who Eileen was about Dietz. yep twenty-five or so at the time, but she was the same size as the Linda body Blair. of a twelve-year-old. <laughs> she does the slapping scenes. I think those and are the, the vomit scenes. I think. And the, I don't think she. I think yeah, she was hooked up. So anything yeah. that's from the back, they didn't want Linda Blair there just because days on set were long and it was unpleasant. So mm-hmm. they had this twenty-six-year-old actress do that. And for those of you who don't know who Mercedes McCambridge is, she was like one of the biggest radio stars ever. She is an but icon. Yeah. And she's really interesting because she had been an alcoholic and a smoker, but she'd stopped mm-hmm. drinking at the time of the movie. But she brought two priests with her and was like, okay, I'm going to like mm-hmm. get down to it. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to drink tons of milk and raw eggs. And I'm going to like let this demon out. But she would just finish after being strapped down to a chair and cry. And these priests would just mm-hmm. pray for her. Yeah. She also, she said that she lost her voice. She like, after times where she was recording, they recorded for like two weeks. Apparently she had to stay in like a nearby hotel because she would be so completely exhausted by doing just voice acting that she could, she couldn't even drive or walk. And that after the production, she lost her voice for like weeks. So crazy. And Ellen Burstyn, when she came on the scene for wanting this role, she called up William Friedkin, said, this role is meant for me. I need this role. And there were so many other actresses considered. The studio didn't want her. They're like, he's like, no, Ellen's the person. Ellen's the person. And eventually she ended up getting the role. She was right. But that's because none of the other actresses the studio wanted, wanted the role. 
Audrey Hepburn was one of those other actresses, and really? she said, you're not filming it in Rome. He was the number one choice, yeah. Audrey Hepburn. Could you imagine? No, if it's not I Rome, can't. I won't do it. Yep. <laughs> so funny. I had no idea that Audrey Hepburn was at one time kind of attached to this movie. Oh, yeah. So was Marlon Brando. And for so Father Marin or who? I yeah, think? no, for Father Karras. Uh, oh, for really? Father I guess Karras, Marlon yeah. Brando would have been I young back so. then. I'm just picturing like old Marlon Brando. <laughs> And then yeah. Jack Nicholson for Maris. No, I think still for, I thought it was still for Karis. Yeah, it's, they wanted big names is what I remember mm-hmm. them saying is they only, they really wanted big name actors to sell the movie. And you kind of didn't end up with any of those big it name actors. The guy who played Karis, it was actually his first ever on-screen role. But they want, I think they wanted, they decided after it's better to have somebody who's not recognizable because mm-hmm. you already have these associations with somebody like, Jack Nicholson or whatever. And so I think after they were like, okay, like let's get people who aren't recognized. Of course you want the box office draw from the jump, but then you also want someone who's not a name you recognize, who's believable as being this priest. They did a really good job with casting for sure. They oh, yeah. really did. The cast, I mean, the cast was phenomenal. Like there, I don't think there was a piece of acting that I thought was unbelievable. And it almost made the movie feel like a documentary, which mm-hmm. is what they were going for. I think in terms of tone. I mean, it all feels yeah. like the point of the whole movie was to make it feel like this could happen to somebody who lives down the street from you. Mm-hmm. Like totally. this could be any other like mother daughter pair that you just happen to live nearby and something really, really, really dark is happening in a place that seems so nice and bright. So the story with the musical score. So they got the guy. I can't remember what his name was from Citizen Kane. I remember William Friedkin is like, you need to do a score that's as amazing as it was for Citizen Kane. And he's like, dude, first you're going to have to make a movie as good as Citizen Kane. Then I'll do a score that good. So that's when William Friedkin's like listening to a bunch of records, trying to find something. He hears this strange sounding one called Tubular Bells by this guy, Mike Oldfield. And he's like, that's it. That's it. And it ended up being one of those weird things that ended up being a critical and commercial success. But I think the musical score, the movie, really, really makes it. Oh, yeah. The sound and just everything that they do with sound in that movie really was fascinating just because there were moments of pure silence. And you you don't get movies that utilize silence in not necessarily scary places. So this Mm -hmm. movie had like scenes of people walking where it was just quiet. And that's deeply unsettling because most of the time you like hear other people on the street. So I think the silence versus the really loud, it was intentionally freaky, especially. And that's, world. Yeah. And that's yeah. also especially apparent to me, actually, in the um, exorcism scenes themselves, mm-hmm. because it goes from moments of absolute chaos of them screaming at her. She's going Wah! at them. And then suddenly it's dead quiet and her eyes are completely white and it's just them kind of whispering their prayers at her. And I find that to be like the, just like the switches like that is insane. It also even happens in the hospital scene where they're doing the spinal tap on her, where it goes from them really quietly setting up her operation to the shot of her, like actually in the machines and being like, boom, 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 boom. Horrifying. Yeah. Like uh, that scene was, and we, I've seen Grey's Anatomy and I don't know why that was so gross. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know gross. why it's so gross. It's because they used real, nurses and doctors to actually do like the procedure on her like not actually actually but people who knew what they were doing and 
Yeah. One of my funnest fun facts about the movie <laughs> is that one of the nurses, the guy with the beard, he's actually turned out to be a serial killer. What? Yeah. What's his name? I do not remember his name. I can Google it, but I know for a fact that he became like a notorious serial killer, I think in Philadelphia. Um, what? Like in the following years. Yeah. That's so crazy because Mercedes McCambridge's son turned out to yes. be a family annihilator. Literally. Yep. He destroyed yeah. his family. He killed it. And then he wrote like this 12 page letter basically saying, you're a shitty mom. And yeah. this is why I did this. And it's like, whoa. You decided because of your financial situation to take the life of your mm-hmm. wife and your kids because of, you know, a little while of chaos or whatever he called it. I can't remember how he referred to it. It was some kind of chaos. And when he died and his estate was settled, she got like several hundred thousand dollars from it. So I just don't know why the guy didn't just sell off everything he had and downgrade, Literally. you know, moved into a condo, pal. I don't, I don't, People I don't get it. death over condos so often. And I don't understand why. Like, just, yeah. Not to say that I understand money, but like liquidate it or something. I don't know. There's got to be another way. Paul Bateson is the killer who was the ra- credited as the radiologist's assistant. He killed a theater critic, Addison Burrell, and he was known by the New York press as the trash bag killer. Yes, the trash bag killer. I've heard of him before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now that, you've seen him. <laughs> that is so crazy. Now we know. We know who this guy is. Now let's... Okay, so I'm going to read this really quickly because it gets to like a little bit of the whininess of Mercedes McCambridge's blaming of his mother for the things that he chose to do, (laughs) which is so ridiculous. Maybe she wasn't the best mother, but like, let's, as a perpetrator, take responsibility for what you've done. Okay, so I'm going to read quickly from Murders on Main, Unresolved Chaos. It's on ArkansasOnline.com. It said, in an entry penned into Markle's spiral-bound diary dated October 27th, 1987, a couple of weeks before his firing from Stevens, the analyst wrote, my wife, Christine, is the greatest woman alive, and my children are the very best. I am broke, and they have no inheritance left. Christine says I have put the family last, and I have. There is really only one choice now. Another entry written a day earlier read, I awake depressed, and by Tuesday, this will be three weeks of unresolved chaos. Christine and the children are beginning to feel the pressure. Amy, in particular, doesn't want to move to Australia or anywhere else. The diary was released after a drawn-out battle in court over the release of Markle's letters and other case-related documents. Those details, which provided a clear picture of Markle's downward spiral, were then printed in an April 18th, 1989 section of the Gazette and Democrat. Among the files released was a 12-page letter from Markle to his mother that blamed her for the financial woes and personal faults that ultimately led him to kill his wife and children and take his own life. In his rebuke of McCambridge, Markle gave a a chronology of his childhood explaining that his mother hadn't been there for him, often at a young age. Instead, her interests primarily related to drinking and failed marriages. Markle wrote, You were clearly a working mother. I was conceptualized to save a bad marriage. I accepted the, quote, new father. I lost the, quote, new father. I watched you try to kill yourself twice. You've never been there for me when the chips were down, end quote. So this guy just loved to blame his mother. Like, I killed my wife and my kids. Yeah. But it's your fault Uh because you made me sad. You made me, mom. (laughs) Now it's your fault. 
Yeah, like that's an Ed Kemper explanation there. Like, oh, mother yeah. made me do it. Mother made me. It's always the mother. Let's all blame the women. Oh, I Do you know. know how many crappy moms are there in the world? There's many more crappy moms than there are serial killers. I'll tell you that. It's not, that's not the common denominator. It's, yeah. maybe it's the hatred of women. I think I it's an excuse. It's, women. it's a contributing exactly. factor for people to mm-hmm. act a certain way, but at the end of the day, it's a choice. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's an inner thing that happens that turns you into a serial killer. It can't always just be external forces because no. people have been in similar situations and they haven't fucking murked their families. Like, It's a ridiculous excuse. It's sort of like when people say, oh, the devil made me do it or this or that mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's like, you're looking for something to blame rather than some kind of intense self-examination. And I get it. It's easier to blame an external force than to mm-hmm. look inside oneself and to understand why one does what one does. Didn't like the son of Cain or whatever he called himself blame a dog? Son of Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Son he of did. Sam. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was bullshit though. I'm pretty sure. It was bullshit. That he made he it up, he right? Lied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that there was a demon in the dog who told him what to do. And then was like, okay, yeah, there wasn't a demon in the dog. I just did it. That was the era though of, you know, writing oh, the cops, police yeah. and like making a big thing, you know, like BTK, you had mm-hmm. the Zodiac, all of these the sorts of celebrity things. Celebrity murderers. Totally. Mm-hmm. Should we start at like the beginning kind of of the scenes in Iraq? Should we talk about those? That sure. was crazy. Yeah. I mean, the, the budget to send people to Iraq to film scenes that you could film in California. They actually had to bring the British embassy with them to film it because it was not like the communication between Iraq and the U.S. was not good. Like, that's how difficult it was to film. Saddam was there at the time, right? It was, well, it was under Saddam's rule that this was filmed. So it was really difficult. And they had to send that Pazuzu statue to Iraq, Mm -hmm. the big phallus statue. And they sent it to Australia by accident to Perth. And then they unwrap it. They're like, (laughs) what is this big penis statue here? Like, I don't understand. So then they had to send it to Iraq. Yeah. Something interesting about Pazuzu, the demon and the statue uh, and like their real history. So... Real big statues like that were not a thing in Mesopotamian culture. Like that just was not a thing. They would have little statues at best of the demons and Pazuzu himself. Turns out he wasn't even that evil. Like he really wasn't evil in their culture because demons are viewed very differently to them than they are to like Christianity. So he was often used as a protector of like pregnant women, which I find to be super interesting. He looked almost like a fertility statue with that. Yeah, like, exactly. You see this mm-hmm. giant erect phallus mm-hmm. and it's there. It, it does look sort of protect. It is very arresting when you see that scene in Iraq. And oh, yeah. Father Marin's kind of walking through this archaeological site. Those two guards come out and then they're like, oh, it's just this dude. So he keeps walking, comes upon this giant statue of Pazuzu, sees these two dogs fighting. So there's that like primal kind of black dog reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the grim symbolism there with the black dog always symbolizes death. Always. Yeah, and they use it again later on in the movie, too. When he's having the dream. Yeah, Mm -hmm. with his mother. And Mm -hmm. there's a black dog, yeah. Another thing about the statue is the position of Pazuzu's hand and arm is the exact same way that Reagan positions her arm during the hypnotism scene. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Hand up. She does the exact same thing, which I think is very cool. What are both of your takes on the Iraq scene? Like lots of people don't believe that it's necessary, but 
I kind of like the scenes. I think that it leads up and maybe explains that there's this this almost ageless power of evil that mm-hmm. there, you know, this isn't something that was just created here in this, you know, bringing of the Ouija board. It kind of contextualizes it for me. I completely agree with that. It contextualized shows that it's not just like specifically targeting her. It's a mass evil. And then also it shows that Father Marin isn't just like a, a Hail Mary at the end. He has a connection to this demon rather than being just like a random exorcist who pops up. And it's also interesting to give him backstory more than that with sort of what he's been spending his life doing and how the demon has kind of followed him since he exercised it the first time. Like it was faded. Like he tells that other guy in Iraq, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I've got something that I need to take care of. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like he knows that this will end his life, right? It feels like he's got some foresight here and it's grim when he's taking all those pills in that cafe and they're giving him like tea Mm -hmm. in Iraq. His hand is shaking so much. Yeah. The exact same way it does by the end, right before, you know, he... Yeah, this scene couldn't be done like in a museum somewhere in Georgetown with them looking at a thing of Pazuzu and being like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Here's backstory. I think it was much more interesting the way that they showed it Mm -hmm. instead of saying like coming out and saying there's a demon on the loose now, y'all. So I think it was definitely necessary. But what's interesting is they never say Pazuzu in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's weird, Um, right? Yeah, it's only in the books that they ever actually say the name. The beginning of the movie also matches perfectly with the book. Like, that's the exact same way. And it's to, like, to the woman being in the black veil being pulled through, like, the cafe area, which, I don't know, that's just, like, it's just interesting to me because it just, both of them just feel like it gives that weight that you were talking about to the demon, even though they never say his name. Does the guy with the white cloudy eye, the one who has, like, a cataract or something, is he included in the book? Because I find that so unsettling. Like, they're all toiling away. And then he looks over at Father Marin and he's got that one white eye. Actually, yes, I believe so. What I think happens in the book is because you because the book switches around viewpoints a lot. It goes it starts with Father Marin for that one Iraq scene. Then it goes into Chris and it goes into Karis. But with that, there's a struggle that Marin talks about having about being able to love his fellow man and that he had difficulty loving certain people. And one example of that is in the beginning where he sees this like gross looking creepy guy and he has to smile at him and show and that's his sort of like he realizes that that's like the best way that he can show his like love in a sense to people he doesn't love by like faking it it's it's a really weird part but he is in it specifically for the purpose of father mare and being like ew but i love him anyways it's interesting because it it's one of those unsettling things. Like, you know that this evil is going to befall this priest, this young girl. Like, you know what's coming. Mm-hmm. So when you see all these things, like the black dog, the guy with the clouded eye, like you're already reading these things into it. And it's got this mm-hmm. like emotional weight that's just building, right? It's just yeah. compounding with each strange thing that you see throughout all of these scenes in Iraq. Like omens. Exactly. And then it just kind of flashes to like, okay, like, what city is this filmed in, by the way? Um, Georgetown. Georgetown, yeah. Is it it so is filmed in Georgetown. So mm-hmm. the exteriors were filmed in Georgetown. The interiors, I believe, were filmed in New York City. Okay, that's interesting. So I wasn't sure. I was like, I know where it's supposed to be, but oftentimes I know with movies, they make it look like it's mm-hmm. somewhere. Like I'm from, you know, Vancouver originally, and 
they can make Vancouver look like so many different American yeah, cities. It looks like everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm like 90% sure that they filmed in Georgetown for the exterior scenes, including the, um, the staircase, the staircase. Yeah. Cause that's a pretty popular tourist site now. Mm-hmm. Just that staircase. Mm-hmm. Just the staircase. Yeah. Literally just the staircase. <laughs> that scene is so unsettling. Watching her do that like backward spider walk down the stairs and just vomit blood. Oh no, I meant the the staircase. The oh, the other the died. exterior. Because I was like, oh, what did they just preserve the one staircase? The one <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. But that been scene is one of my favorites because I think it's so horrifying. So I would like to see that staircase too. So like, let's talk about the lead up to how this happens to Reagan. So basically. Chris is in town filming a movie. She's one of the most popular actresses in Hollywood, correct? Mm-hmm. And Burt Dennings is the director. He's directing her in, you know, some movie where they're filming at, you know, the university campus. And she's got her daughter, mm-hmm. Reagan, with her. And she's mm-hmm. got a couple, like, she's got some domestic help, right? Like, uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. She's got a cook and a house- driver and a housekeeper. And um, her assistant. Her assistant. Karen. Uh, Sharon. Yeah. And the the driver housekeeper are married. Yes. So we get the idea that there might be something going on when Chris speaks about the rats, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Mr. Howdy comes up when she starts talking to Reagan about the Ouija board, right? And then there's the reference to the ant. Can you explain that? More? I don't think that there's a reference to the ant. They don't mention, yeah, because I'm, I'm starting to like bleed together what was said in the movie and what is the actual story. Mm-hmm. Even though I just rewatched the movie, it's so easy to kind of like get them together. I'm like, oh yeah, so the aunt gave the Ouija board. And I'm like, is that part of the novel? Is it part of the true story? Or is it part of the movie or any number of those three? Exactly. Because there's so much overlap, but there's details that get changed with every telling. Yeah, exactly. It's super interesting though, like, They're at this place. This little girl's playing with this Ouija board. The mom's just like, oh, cool. And then do you remember the part where like the planchette moves? And And she's like, stop that. Don't be mean. Because it's like, is my mom beautiful? And it points to no. Yeah. And it's like, "Uh, Chris, is it not weird that this planchette is like moving around on its own? You don't find it disconcerting your daughter's playing with a Ouija board, one. Two, the planchette is clearly moving by some force that is not Reagan. And you don't find this odd? Well, I think before that movie, Ouija boards were more thought of as like a thing teens did for fun. Uh, The Exorcist really was one of the first movies to make it into something scary as opposed to something silly. So it really kind of like people would play it as if it was Monopoly in the old days. Did you know that like the Catholic Church was all on board with this movie? They were like, yes, this is going to bring us some notoriety. We're going to get to the forefront. Evil is real. Who doesn't love priests defeating evil? And then they saw the movie and they were like, oh, God, (laughs) oh, no. But yeah, it's so weird, though, because William Friedkin said that like so many actors thought that they could play Father Marin and so many priests thought that they were Father Marin. (laughs) Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what I was going to say about Captain Howdy. So there's like the whole reason why Reagan is possessed is partially because she's emotionally vulnerable because her parents are going through a divorce and her dad's name is Howard. And so Captain Howdy is supposed to kind of sound like Howard. Mm, Interesting. And so it's creating like this kind entity who's talking to her and luring her in. 
through the guise of being almost like a fatherly funny figure. Mm-hmm. And it's also implied that the man on the horse that she talks about is also the demon. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because that is so weird when she's like, hey, mm-hmm. mom, like I went to the park and there was this horse and I and rode it was this so horse. Beautiful. Oh, mom, can't we get a horse when we go home? Like, it's, yeah, it's just a weird. Was it a mare or a gelding? I rode the horse. Like, don't you ask your daughter, why did you ride this horse? How did you ride this horse? Just, it's just accepted. And it's strange. I assumed that it was kind of like a, like her mom was assuming it was like a maybe imaginary friend sort of thing, or that it was, there's also mentioned something that I saw that was like, she thought it was Sharon's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. One of those two things. And was like, oh, okay, that's fine. But it's, it is weird that she's like, just so cool with it. Cause I would also be like, with this man that you were talking to? She doesn't ask a lot of questions. Chris just kind of accepts, like, oh, playing with the Ouija board? Chill. Like, go for Chill. it. Gonna ride a horse with randos in the park? Go for it. <laughs> Roll with Chris had a lot going on in her life. She's getting a divorce. She's starring in a movie. They're in a new town. She's in building the- a house in LA. She's dealing with too much. She, yeah. She's also broke in the books. She's going broke. Oh, really? Yeah. They don't really, that angle yeah. isn't as interesting in the movie. So they clearly make her affluent and does, she doesn't seem to be experiencing money struggles in the movie. Basically brushed on the book where he's like, you can't buy a new car. Like you need to do another movie this year. And she's like, I don't want to do another movie this year. I want to direct. And he's like, well, you, you need to do a movie and make money. Well, cause she's, I don't know how old she's supposed to be. She looks late thirties, early forties. So it would be that whole mm-hmm. trope of the aging actress and that you're transitioning from those roles of being kind of, you know, the young doe-eyed girl to being like, you're taking on mother roles. And then where do you fit? Right. Mm-hmm. Especially in kind of a much more misogynistic, it's still like that to a degree. Right. But mm-hmm. the film industry in the seventies was far more like that. You're going to age out by the time you're in your forties, except for maybe, yeah. you know, four or five older actresses. And she wanted to start directing like for that reason as well. And she gets an opportunity to direct in the book, but she has to turn it down for financial reasons. And because Reagan is getting sick, so she can't leave to do anything. Screws up her life. <laughs> Yeah, they don't really like they don't touch on that, but it definitely is something that I did think about while watching it. I'm like, she's one of the most popular actresses in the world, but this is the 1970s. So for how long? What is Mm -hmm. her backup? I really wish they would have addressed her desire to direct in the movie because Mm -hmm. it makes her almost more of an aspirational person and a bit of a feminist for the time. And I think that would have made her character a little bit more complex. I, she I does agree with spend that. most of this movie with her only character trait being stressed out or freaked See, out. She just doesn't seem like I, much of a character. I have some opinions upon like, and we can talk about it later, maybe more in full about like the role of women in the movie, in the book, because I really, I have the movie and the book in my head kind of simultaneously. So it's hard for me to separate, separate them fully. When you cut out for a minute, Zelda and I were talking about that and like they all bleed together. It's like the backstory, the movie, the book and like where one ends and the other begins. I sometimes mm-hmm. don't know and I confuse the three of them. Yeah, I I was thinking about the movie earlier and then I was like, oh, wait, no, I'm thinking about the book. Wait, which did that conversation happen during? I didn't even read the book. It's just some of the details you read are in the book and then they become mm-hmm. part of your consciousness attached to the movie, The Exorcist. Exactly. Exactly. 
So then Reagan is displaying all of these kind of bizarre behaviors, right? And Mm -hmm. she goes through all of these, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists. She's assessed by all of these medical doctors. And then you described that really kind of visceral scene where they do the spinal tap and the use of sound kind of in this unsettling way, like the the thump, the thump of the MRI. Mm -hmm. And it just... It's really grating because I think that the tonal shift between absolute calm and chaos is so jarring throughout this movie. Exactly. And a lot of the times it's with diegetic sounds, so like in-movie sounds. And so it all kind of adds up to the realistic feel of it because you feel you really feel like you're watching this girl go through a horrible medical experience. And then you feel like you're almost in there with her with that sound. Because it's just so, yeah, visceral. My favorite part of all the medical happenings on is that they make it seem more realistic because it's all these doctors being like, there's nothing wrong with her. And there's something so obviously wrong with her. But it is just that level of realism where it's like some people do not believe unless they can like have visual proof. That's part of the reason why I like the movie so much in a sense, because it kind of goes through what where like what it would take for me to believe that my child is possessed mm-hmm. you know because she doesn't just immediately go oh it's a demon she goes to medical then when medical doesn't work she goes to psychiatry then when psychiatry doesn't work she still is in the psychiatry medical area before they're the ones who turn her towards getting an exorcism and only after she sees like the horrific crucifix head turning sort of scene does she actually fully believe that her daughter is possessed and even then like she when she goes to talk to Damien Karras she's like I think someone I know might be possessed like is probably possessed she's still unsure and she looks all sketchy because she shows up after she's been punched in the face by Reagan (laughs) with like these this scarf on her head and these big sunglasses For a minute, let's go back and address this sense of duty that kind of underscores this film, like the sense of what you owe to those that you love. And we see this Mm -hmm. with Father Karras initially. And we see this relationship with his mother who lives in New York. He's got to basically go out of his way to see her. She's living on her own. And he doesn't have the money to put her in in an assisted living facility. He speaks to his Mm -hmm. uncle. His uncle's like, you could have been a hotshot, you know, psychiatrist. Your mom could have lived in a penthouse. Yeah. And it's like, thanks, dude. Like, that's really helping here. Yeah, way, way to make me feel good about my life choices, man. And then it flashes to her basically being in, like, what looks like a psychiatric ward. And then she, mm-hmm. we know that she's dead. And then he has that really weird dream where she walks up from the subway and basically is saying hi. He's trying to run towards her. Then he sees this, you know, black dog. And then she's gone. And then later, very soon after, Chris comes into his life with the story of Reagan, what you just explained with the sunglasses, the scarf, and someone in my life may be possessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is really interesting that the, the sense of responsibility, because then he also takes on this, like her case so wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. in a sense, yeah. and takes care of her so of Reagan so deeply and I, I I feel like it must have to do with that feeling of my chosen profession couldn't help save my mother so I'm going to use my two professions psychiatry and being a priest to save this girl but he's still putting priest on the back burner because that's what sort of like in a sense like killed his mom he's losing his faith over it and puts the psychiatrist side of him first above that 
there's an element of sacrifice there. Like when he didn't, he couldn't necessarily understand why he'd chosen this path and was feeling a great deal of guilt over being in a financially precarious position where he was unable to assist his mother. But then it's like the greater purpose became clear. His sacrifice became clear. And he then chose to take on that evil himself. And like, we'll get to the actual scene at the end, but he chooses to take this on. And it's a great amount of sacrifice for both him and Father Marin. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. The ultimate sacrifice, one would say. Yeah. And even for Chris, like you can see that she puts Reagan first. There's a sense of duty and responsibility where her daughter's well-being, she isn't just going to trust that she's going to put her under observation for six months, like Father mm-hmm. Karras initially says is the best course of action. She's like, I'm not doing that to my daughter. That isn't what's wrong. And I basically intuitively know as her mother, that thing up there is not my daughter. Yeah. She's like, she says the line, like, you could show me her identical twin the same every single way. And I would know that it wasn't my Reagan. And yeah, I think I feel like it's one of those things. A lot of people talk about the fact that the movie and the book also switch. They switch from being fully, mostly centered on Chris to being fully centered on like the men. But to me, it's like she would have done what they did if she could have, if she had those skill sets. Absolutely. Like they make them out to be the heroes and they do sacrifice everything. But you see Chris dealing with all that she's dealing with. A lot of mothers would have gone, okay, the doctors are saying this is what you do. Mm -hmm. You do that. She said, no, that's my daughter. I know my daughter and I am not doing Mm -hmm. that. I'm going to do everything within my power. And I think that makes her one of the heroes of the movie, but they just, they make her more one dimensional. Like you both mentioned, she's stressed out and that's kind of her emotion throughout the movie, but they could have made her more complex and more interesting if they would have spent the time with Chris that they did with Father Karras or Father mm-hmm. Marin. Yeah, I feel like we definitely could have delved deeper into her, into Chris's psyche rather than like the way that they did with Father Karras. Cause like we got to see all of that backstory of his, but Chris's backstory, like with her husband, is only just lightly touched upon. And it's things that you, you really only know if you've read the book. If you've got divorced parents and you see that scene, you definitely know because, <laughs> right? Like it's one of those, like basically Chris is screaming at him. Like you're not going to call or calling to the hotel. He doesn't call his daughter on his birthday and screaming. And it's like, she's so angry at him that she's kind of got this disregard that Reagan is hearing every single word that she's saying. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that also kind of adds to the fact of why she's so protective of Reagan because Reagan's become her only family. Mm-hmm. Because also because the the director that they were working with, she was very close with him and he's dead. And Reagan's killed him. But that's just kind of her entire support system crumbling almost overnight. So she's got to cling on to the one thing that she can help. And that's her daughter. Speaking of that, let's talk about that weird party. So Chris has... (laughs) That was a weird party. It's a weird party. Like Chris has all these, you know, movers and shakers over all of her, you know, domestic help is there. She's got... Burt Dennings, the director, you know, and and that one so drunk, so drunk that he's like harassing her, that poor old dude. What Mm -hmm. was what was his name? I think it's Carl. Carl. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what was going on there, but he's harassing him. And then the the other father, the one who's like, my idea of heaven is, you know, playing the piano for everybody every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Father Dyer. Yeah. (laughs) That guy's hilarious. But They're all playing. And then Reagan comes down the stairs, just basically stares at them. You're going to die up there and then pees all over the floor. 
Well, she's saying you're going to die up there to the astronaut who's at the party <laughs> who's supposed to be going to space in six months. Oh, that makes so much more sense. I was like, what I does that even mean? I wouldn't, it, you can, if you watch the movie like 30 times, you could like, you could figure it out because they mention that he's an astronaut. astronaut. Yeah. But I didn't get it until I read the book because <laughs> I was just like, are you just saying some weird shit? Reagan just going for some wackiness, but it's spookier when you know that she's telling a man who's going to space that he's going to die up there. Is he one of the people on like the Challenger, one of those spacecrafts that exploded? Is that kind of... Um, I didn't see... All it says in the book is that he was slated to go to space in six months. I didn't look into when like the Challenger, like what, like things like that. I wonder if there is like a, there was a spacecraft that went, that didn't go quite well. I wonder too. That's so weird, but that makes so much more sense. I wish they would have addressed that in the movie because, like, you're right? gonna die up there. It's like, who are you talking to? Yeah, like, and I like, thought it meant her bedroom. It could have meant like it could have meant anything. That's what I thought. It it's like the first time I saw it, I was like, because they they show a shot of the astronaut, but he's just a face. Like, I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. He's not wearing a and space suit, so how are we supposed yeah. to know? I need his little name tag to say astronaut. Yeah, going to space in six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put it on a t-shirt, then we'll get it. Please. <laughs> That's the sort of thing I need spelled out a little bit more. A little less subtlety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think with there's a lot of having to put together pieces. And I think older horror movies, they assume that while you're watching, you're going to put this all together. And sometimes these associations aren't strong enough for the audience to grasp. Unless, yeah. like you said, Emma, you watch it, you know, a bunch of times or you've read the book. The book is what really helped me understand everything that was going on, especially because uh, Friedkin worked so specifically from the book. Like in the documentary, he talked about how they went through the book, like chapter by chapter, like paragraph by paragraph and chose the parts that they liked. And they didn't change most of the dialogue in it matches with the book pretty perfectly. Even like the shots matches with things that Blatty wrote to a pretty incredible degree. Like it's not... I haven't seen a book match or movie match a book like that almost anywhere. The Fault in Our Stars is literally verbatim. (laughs) I did read that book and it was like verbatim the same as the movie because I'd watched the movie first with my sister and I was like, oh my God, that was good. And one day I'm like, okay, I'm on vacation. I'll just, this is a good beach read. And I read it and I'm like, this is literally like verbatim the movie. (laughs) Do you guys think it helps or harms movies where the writer of the book is so involved in the filmmaking process? I think it in depends case, on the writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it depends on the writer. In this case, I think it helped. And well, no, it was it's it was interesting because the way that they they worked so closely, Friedkin and Platty, where when Friedkin wrote the original the original script, he had changed a bunch of stuff from the book to make it better for film. Yeah, and then Friedkin was like no 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 I want your book dude give me your book so in this case it almost like the you know and like also on that the director's cut is actually more of the writer's cut because they include scenes that they had to take out of the movie yeah and so I think it helped be like the writer be so involved because they were able to make something so faithful and They've and I've read a lot of stuff online where it was like if one thing had been off about this movie, it would have been hilarious. Mm-hmm. Oh, for like sure, it, it could have been so easily turned into being a comedy. Just a couple, so easily. Yeah, 
couple adjustments and it would have been mm-hmm. horror comedy for sure. Exactly. So I think, th- and the book is really scary. So I think that having this like association and close working relationship helped because otherwise it could have turned into, if they tried to make it even slightly more like cinematic, cinematic. Yeah. Like Hollywood jump scary stuff. Although that wasn't really the style at the time, but I digress. It would have been really funny. (laughs) And one of the things that really stands out in this movie to me is, is like the transformation of Reagan. Zelda, you know a lot about the makeup, right? So Dick Smith was very famous because he did the all the blood for the Godfather movies. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how they heard about his name. And that's how he got attached to the Exorcist project. And his whole thing is that they went through at least six or seven different makeup looks for Linda Blair because they couldn't quite get it right with the because she's a little girl and the first look was very witchy. So she had like black, crazy hair and she looked, you know, very spooky. And it ended up taking almost the entire time to transform her into how we think she looks just because they had to keep fighting for what does a demonic child look like? And they did end up settling on all of the like creepy scars on her face and her things are what humans could inflict upon themselves Mm. just to a grotesque manner. So everything is done where it's uh, apparently they say it's because she's scraped herself with the crucifix that she's also masturbating with but like that's why her face is so scratched up is she's like clawing at herself and doing things and that's how we get to her final face which is like gangrenous and disgusting and it took her four hours every day to get into that makeup she was 13 so she got bored so they put a tv on her makeup desk and they'd played the beverly hillbillies to keep her entertained (laughs) that's so cute and innocent I Mm -hmm. love that. I also heard that I read, not heard, but I read that the, you know, the face of Pazuzu, like not the statue, but like the face that flashes. Mm -hmm. That was also an early makeup test that they did on Eileen Geetz. That is her as well. That is Eileen, who's the face. And that's what she's credited as. She's not credited as as the body. She's credited as the face in the movie, which I think is interesting. We have the actress, the voice and the face. Mm -hmm. so weird right and like there's this argument at the end between William Friedkin and Mercedes McCambridge William Friedkin says Mercedes McCambridge said Linda Blair she deserves all the credit she did such a great job great little actress I don't want to take a credit it will take away from Linda but then when the movie comes out before it's screened Mercedes McCambridge totally like freaks out and says where's my credit I deserve a credit. Why is my credit not there? And so basically they had to go in and change it on all the movies and add a credit for Mercedes McCambridge to avoid litigation on this, but they already had it from her double. So it was like, what's going on here? I'm not really sure whose narrative is true, either William Friedkin or Mercedes McCambridge. They both seem a little questionable at times. I'm always more inclined to believe Mercedes McCambridge just because William Friedkin seemed to have an image in his mind for the movie and that he didn't want to disrupt that image of this little girl being a demon. Yeah, I think you're right. So easy for just to say voice stylings by... Yeah, like any sort of little credit. Like little credit. But I think you're right. He did. He wanted her to be this demonic entity and that Linda Blair did it all, that this little girl was essentially this demon. And to put in her stunt double or her body double or whatever and this other voice 
he felt like that took away from that. And I feel like he didn't do it for Linda Blair. I felt like he did it for himself. I completely agree with that. Yeah, it's the Darth Vader. It's the Darth Vader thing where it's you have a body, a voice, and, you know, the rest of it where it's all different. Yeah, I think it was also in order to get the Best Actress nomination for Linda Blair. She had to be credited a solo. Yeah, like part of the campaign to get that, which in turn will boost the movie's credibility. Mm -hmm. And so I think that played a lot into why he wanted it all to seem like it was just Linda Blair, none of these other women. Yeah, he said that he was basically blacklisted, that she was robbed of an Academy Award. And I don't know what the rules are and regulations with regards to that. I would think that if he was maybe honest about it and said, okay, this double was on for 30 seconds of screen time, it was a very small amount of screen time. It was like under a minute, Mm -hmm. but they were critical scenes. And I think that was what was so controversial. And then to find out that he basically potentially cut out Mercedes McCambridge So then you've got two controversies surrounding it. So it's kind of already poisoned the well with regards to Linda Blair's Oscar hopes, I think. Yeah, yeah. And this was the first horror movie ever nominated. So I think it's crazy that they were trying to shoot for a Best Actress. I mean, it was great that they even got nominated. Shoot for the moon, you'll end up around the stars. Except for you won't. (laughs) Um, Stars are very far away. But... Yeah, I, I, I think that it was just him being kind of egomaniac sort of trying thing. to push his but, own agenda. Yeah. You guys both watched the documentary, right? Like, I know you yeah. did Zelda and Emma, you did as well. Mm-hmm. What was it called? Fear of God, The Exorcist, Fear of God. Yeah, Fear of God, 25 Fear of God. years after the making. It was so interesting. Like, for anyone so who's listening, go watch it. It's on YouTube and it's fascinating because you see this portrait of William Friedkin as a bit of a misogynist who treated Ellen Burstyn a bit like crap and her body was just you know a product like we better get the shot I don't care if you get hurt to do it and it was shocking Mm -hmm. it's also fun fact about that in terms of Mercedes McCambridge as well I watched including the documentary I was looking up other stuff and Mercedes McCambridge got cut out of the documentary (laughs) Really? I thought she was in the documentary. I mean, the one that I saw on YouTube, she wasn't in. Then I found an interview with her about being in it that it said that she was cut out of. Because her son killed his family. That's what I'm assuming was like the contrary. They do mention her. They don't mention her. But I mean, like she was a talking head. Yeah. She was interviewed for it. And she seemed like such like the baddest bitch. And talking about like what it was like to go through all of it. And why she, she like, so this one line in particular was that she, it was easy for her to find like the rage of the demon and the voice of the demon. Cause she thinks it's just right there, like under the surface surface for everyone. She was an alcoholic, right? And so she yeah. hadn't drank in plenty of years. She'd abused cigarettes and alcohol. And so she said to bring out that demon that is just below the surface, I need to go there. And they mm-hmm. were, and I think William Friedkin was like, oh, like, you sure you want to do that? And she's like, no, it's cool. But like, I'm a Catholic. I've got these couple of priests. Like she literally brought, I think, two or three priests with her on set mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. And they, they just like pray over her after she would be strapped in screaming these like guttural animalistic screams for hours. And then they would pray and she would bawl her eyes out. That was just, I heard that on Inside the Exorcist, that Wondery podcast, and it was just like kind of heartbreaking. Like this woman's going to the ends of the earth to get this perfect take. And then she doesn't even get credited. Yeah, I know. I just, 
Like I tend to agree, like I'm more likely to believe that it was William Friedkin's vision to have it Mm -hmm. all be Reagan and that he probably just kind of came up with this narrative that Mercedes didn't want it, but Mercedes never said Mercedes didn't want it. Yeah. I think at best it was a miscommunication between them. Mm -hmm. He probably wanted to be credited as additional voices. Mm -hmm. At worst, it was him pushing his own agenda. And can we just quickly speak about how William Friedkin would stimulate his actors by firing guns close oh, to their heads? Oh, my God. Who does that? Who, Who does that? And slapping them across the face. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Yeah, he did that, too. Yeah, he slapped in the end scene where Father Dyer is giving the last rites to Damien. He wasn't getting the emotion out correctly. And so Friedkin goes and just slaps him across the face after they had already done 15 takes. Like, that's so appropriate. Yeah. And like, so it was when his hand is shaking, he said that his hand was shaking because it was out of like pure pain and exhaustion. But that got, that made the take. Oh, and then well, Linda whatever Blair it takes, I guess, buddy. Yeah. And Linda Blair was injured during the, the convulsion scene where she slammed back and forth and she's screaming, like, please stop. It hurts. It burns. It burns. It hurts. And the lines are literally like, it hurts. It burns. And while she didn't break character, she was actually in that much pain and she was damaging her, her back. Ellen Burstyn had lifelong back problems due to her injury on set. And they were like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's like three days of going to the chiropractor. Get over it, Ellen. That was so misogynistic. That it felt was. so, yeah. I was like, guys, no, no. Yeah. Definitely not here for it. Real. No. And then we see kind of like as it goes through to the point where you've got Father Marin and... Father Karras, they're doing the exorcism. Once it gets to that point, you know it's kind of a foregone conclusion, like what's going to happen. But some of the scenes are just, they're just so shocking. But like you said, every time, like when I rewatched it, just I rewatched half of it last night, the other half this morning. And some of these things could have very easily been so comical. Yeah. I mean, having a little girl say these words in general, like you have little kids saying horrible things in a lot of comedy movies for for gags because it is just shocking yeah because it's shocking and making it feel real and having like the room shake and things move can look so fake so easily and it's just really amazing that they made it so scary for just the sincerity i think the sincerity was there Mm -hmm. and that might have been because of some of the abuse on set yeah i also think that the practical effects are really important. Oh yeah, 100%. If you were doing these with like visual gags or like, oh, we'll fix it in post, I just don't think the mm -hmm. reactions would have been there. Exactly. What was that, Kate? Remember in the documentary when they start talking about the guy that made some of the sound effects and they basically described him as like a barefoot Mexican or something like that? Oh my God. Yeah, the racism in this movie is bubbling just under the surface Mm -hmm. and it's It's all a little gross um but basically they got one of the world's best sound editors who was mexican who didn't speak any english they said who really knows um Mm. and he he did all the foley effects for it like on the set in one day sound of like reagan like cranking her neck and stuff like that like those sorts of things yeah that was an old leather wallet that he held up yeah Uh, i remember after a microphone i saw that in the documentary like and I can't recommend this documentary more. It's super interesting for anybody it's who so loves the movie. He also, I also think that the use of animal, animal sounds throughout it that me, like melded with Mercedes' voice 
Yes. It was really, really powerful. The the imagery of animals, like the use of the black dog and the animalistic sounds, it gives it a very mm-hmm. primal feel. Yeah, completely. Nothing is more primal than the fight between good and evil. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what I was, what I was going to say, uh, like animal sounds, but in a lot of like stories of possession, people make animal sounds like barking or hissing, things like that. So they incorporated it in such an interesting way. And in the book, they talk a lot about her or he mentions her like howling a lot. But there, it sounds like there's a lot of almost like, it sounds like cows at times to me, like a deep like braying sort of sound. And so I think they used really, really smart ways to create, to make her more of this primal evil with animals. Because I think the animals are what make her add, just add that extra. Landscape is the extra, yeah. Yeah. That extra thing that makes her more otherworldly, almost. I think without the, without the soundscape, without the musical score, without that tonal shift between silence and kind of this chaos of sounds or very loud sounds, you could have very well had a very different tone to the movie. Like it could have been comedy with a different score, even if nothing changed. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? If you would have had more upbeat music or you didn't use that shift, it would have had a completely different emotion attached to so many scenes. Yeah. I think the lighting also really, really helped it. Oh, for sure. Beautiful. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, I I made the connection actually when I rewatched it last night was, so we all know the iconic shot of Father Marin standing underneath like the light outside of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love it. I was, when I was watching it, you know that part where it's like a really quick moment, but during the exorcism, Father Marin sees her, suddenly she's like loose and she's praying to the statue of Mm Mizuzu. The lighting is so similar. Yeah. The lighting is like, she has a spot, a misty spotlight on her at the exact same time. And I realized that I think it's because it's supposed to be not actually happening. I think that it's supposed to be a message from God telling Marin what's happening but i'm mm-hmm. not, i i want to get you guys thoughts on it because i i never noticed the deep parallel between the lightings in there before and also right after the scene she goes back to having her hands bound in front of her like they were never like she know it never even happened well if we were to believe you know the story of you know the big fight in heaven and all of the fallen angels we were to believe that evil does essentially you know come from it's all from one source right so mm-hmm. yeah I mean, there's that parallel, but there is also the parallel where it could be because of the mirroring with the imagery. It could be a message from God or I'm not really sure, but I think, yeah, I think your assessment is probably accurate. It just seems it was a scene that always confused me, but I still think it's it's probably one of, if not my favorite shot in the entire movie, because she goes from bound to unbound and that complete and total lighting change with the statue. So I, I it like occurred to me. But I think it's so beautiful and interesting. And I, I don't hear a lot of people talk about that part in particular. No, until you two brought it up. Like, I never really even <laughs> thought about it. Like, I do know that one shot where he stands there and it's under that shaft of light. And it is an iconic shot. And pretty much everybody will associate it with this movie. But the use of lighting, I had to go back and think about it. I'm like, you're both right. It's, it is really beautifully done. And it does lend itself to kind of this atmospheric gloom, but with moments of illumination. Mm-hmm. And I think those it's those moments of illumination of light to dark are so powerful. Yeah. Um, 
It's that tonal shift. It's like the silence to this chaotic or very loud sound. You don't know the darkness without the light and vice versa. And I think they they really shift between the two with regards to sound and lighting in this movie masterfully. And then there's like warm to cold lighting, like the the lighting in the home is very warm. And then you go into Reagan's room and it's It's so cold. cold. It's very cold. Cold and dark and completely opposite everything outside of it. Well, speaking of cold, the seeing the voices, I think that's some of the best lighting. Oh, the breath. The breath. That's some of the best lighting in that movie, just because that looks like souls escaping their bodies. That was so well done. And that was all practical. They had to make it cold. They Mm -hmm. had to make it cold. There was no special effects to do it back then. It was literally that cold. I had no idea. In a fridge how cold it was though like zero degrees fahrenheit mm-hmm. oh my god yeah freezing and reagan's barely wearing anything she's there for hours in this nighty. yeah like, and then they have to stop every so often because the lights of the set warm it up and you have to restart everything and everyone's freezing and you can barely act because your face is so cold they put yeah. those actors through the ringer it was beautiful like that worth I, it. that was so worth it just for that effect yeah that's I completely weird. agree that's one of the scenes that like I'd watched the last half again this morning. And that's one of the ones that just stuck out in my head because I'd already watched the documentary knowing the context of how they got that shot. It mm-hmm. was just like the dedication of everybody involved. And it's so beautiful seeing that breath. So beautiful. It was crazy. It, it really does look like souls escaping their mouths, Zelda. Like that's a perfect way to put it because it's like, you don't even, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where it's like, I don't, somehow the breath just looks that beautiful. Yeah, it's a great way to put it, Zelda. Like that juxtaposition between the beauty of the look of this like spirit breath and the ugliness that Reagan has gotten to at this point, right? Like she's mm-hmm. basically got to this sh- like shell of her former self. She's got all of these injuries. Like you said earlier, she's gangrenous almost. She's looking so unhealthy and not like a human anymore. And then something so pure and beautiful about this like white breath that does look like a soul. Mm-hmm looks like pure energy yeah every so often they'll suddenly like bathe her in this ethereal lighting like when she like levitates off of the bed and everything goes silent and she kind of has like that like a a a light shining on her again her dress becomes very not see-through exactly but like uh ephemeral ephemeral yeah while her eyes are white and she's not moving and then she gets back down like she lowers back down the lighting goes away and it's back to her being totally ugly and the rest of it being that beautiful, like, breathiness. It's just wowza. (laughs) And I think one of the really cool parts about it is that most of the times when you see breath in movies, it looks cold. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no reason to do the effect unless you're pretending you're outside on New York and it's in the winter. But the fact that there was no snow on the ground, like, you're just in a room. I think that added to the creepy but beautiful effect of, like, Because yes, it is cold, but in context of the scene, nothing would be cold. So the breath Mm -hmm. happening is just haunting. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it looks out of place in that it shouldn't be there. We know it's not wintertime. It should not be this cold. And there is something haunting about that. But I think the use of these contrasts and juxtaposition with everything, like the changing of the light from like this almost ethereal light, like it's... 
looks like it's almost angelic and it's shining down on Reagan. Like, mm-hmm. is this supposed to symbolize God's love? And then it changes really quickly and she goes to this ugly thing. Is this supposed to kind of contrast, juxtapose these two things, this good versus evil? Because we know that's what kind of underscores this entire movie is that, you know, age old battle between good and evil. I think it definitely does, especially when it goes in conjunction with it being more quiet, sort of like it's a moment of peace and release every so often where they kind of, they are able to touch her with their words and their prayers. And then the demon takes control again and everything goes chaotic and dark or not dark. So it's already pretty dark, but chaotic. And uh, I, I almost want to go with claustrophobic in a sense. Mm-hmm. The darkness kind of comes in. It encroaches mm-hmm. upon them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it definitely feels like those moments are almost God touching down yeah. or so influencing. Yeah. It's like hope. You have to bring hope amidst the chaos, right? And so you have these mm-hmm. moments of quiet reflection and peace where it seems that it's possible that Reagan could be saved. Because if it's mm-hmm. all this darkness and chaos, we see no hope. You don't understand the struggle as much. But you see these little things kind of peeking through that show us that Reagan's still there. Yeah. And it's also what the writer said is he wanted the movie to end positive. Like, even though all this horrible, like, goodness won in the end. Spoilers, Mm -hmm. sorry. Goodness wins in the end. (laughs) We save the little girl. But the talk between he and the director, the two Williamses, was so fascinating because the director wanted to be a little more open-ended, which I think is how modern horror movies are done nowadays. It's like, ooh, like, did they save him? Is there room for a sequel? But this one was very cut and dry. Well, and it's also interesting because he, the director took out the, originally in the original cut, he took out the scene where Father Karras and Father Marin basically spell out what the meaning of the movie and the possession is. Mm-hmm. Where it's supposed to be about making everyone around you feel like see the ugliness and brutality of humanity rather than actually targeting a little girl. It's just using the little girl to make everyone else lose hope and lose faith. She serves and, as that vessel, sort of like as Jesus would serve as the vessel for hope. She'd be yeah. the antithesis to that. Yeah, exactly. And it's making people see like the most innocent of people and like a sweet, pretty little girl do the most degrading acts possible. And that's going to, if that's going to make anyone lose their faith, like, I don't know what else would, but in the scene that was cut out, they talk about how like, that's why we need to stay vigilant. So it doesn't win in that way. Cause it wins in more of a psychological sense. Like it might take the life of Reagan, but if it doesn't have that effect with it, then like that's the point of it. It's not to take her life. It's to create that effect. But Friedkin took that scene out, I guess, to make it more, more open-ended, even like, though it's right in the middle of the exorcism. You don't need to hold our hands through it. I agree. I think that like you, you don't want to assume that your audience is stupid. You want them to be able to kind of have this mystery in their head where they're trying to connect the why a little bit. You want to tie it up to a degree, but not too much. You don't want to spoon feed people. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what William Friedkin didn't want. He didn't want to assume that his audience was stupid and needed it spelled out for them. He wanted them to walk away still thinking about this movie. not Because mm-hmm. when you tie up a movie perfectly, people don't think about it after the fact the same kind of way. Yeah, I personally, I personally found myself thinking about it more after I saw that scene. Really? Yeah, which I don't, I'm not sure. I think it's because to me, I, I found the ending, 
I love it, like the original cut as it is, but that scene just felt very poignant to me because it, like hearing the reason for it, rather than it just being sort of like a a religious thing, felt more like relatable in a sense. Okay, I get what you're saying, yeah. Or it's like, we have to do this thing, not because we're good people, but because more people will be destroyed if we don't. Yeah, like less to do with Christianity and more to do with just sacrifice as a sacrifice in the psychology of man and woman. Yeah, that's interesting because you do see both priests basically. You see Father Marin die at you know the hands of Pazuzu, and then you see mm-hmm. Father Karras make that ultimate sacrifice. And when he takes that demon and says, you know, come into me or whatever he says, mm-hmm. and then he jumps out the window, therefore you know extinguishing the evil from Reagan, and then everything kind of goes back to normal you know, or, you know, quasi-normal, whatever normal is, typical. Mm-hmm. And you see this sort of sacrifice and he's at the end of those stairs and that those are the iconic stairs you're speaking of, the <laughs> ones that Karis ends up at the bottom of. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was you, Emma, who said you wanted to speak of the role of women within the movie. Oh, yeah. We kind of touched on it a bit earlier. We ended up touching on it, but there's been a lot of thoughts and I wanted to get both of your thoughts on it about the role of sexuality within the movie in terms of Reagan, because some people th- think that the movie is about a young woman going, kind of like growing into adolescence and then squashing the sexuality that comes with that. Personally, I don't agree with that reading of it completely, but I want to know if you guys had any thoughts about that. I've heard this as well, that this is sort of like Chris's basically refusing to look at Reagan as, you know, coming of age and this is some resistance to it. And this is a 12-year-old kind of on the precipice of puberty and, you know, mm-hmm. menstruation and womanhood. And this is sort of, personally, that's not how I viewed it. Like, that's just yeah. my own subjective like opinion and experience in watching the film. I didn't get that read personally, but I've read a lot of people who buy into this. I, yeah, I don't get that read. At, I didn't get it at all. Personally, to me, when during any scene where sexuality is involved, it seems more like, She's being very, very much violated, not anything like Reagan doesn't seem to be interested in anything in terms of sexuality before she gets possessed. And everything that happens is pretty horrific. So I like I don't agree with the theory, but I've just seen it online so many times. Yeah. And I I think that takes away the message of the fact that she's innocent in all of this. Mm -hmm. Like just in terms of like baseline, what Christianity says about innocence and like how it like should be. And she just really doesn't have any, like if there was a cute boy down the street that she was making eyes at maybe, but none of that is part of her character at all. So it doesn't quite make sense to me. She's yelling at like the doctor is like, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me or whatever she's saying. And it's like, do you really think that if Reagan was present, that she would be saying this to these middle aged men? Like, I just don't think so. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think so either. It feels like a stretch. Like, it feels like a stretch. Like, yes, the women characters could be more fleshed out. But I don't think that that's I I don't see Reagan as uh, her. I don't see it as a coming of age story, personally. And even like the, even the crucifix masturbation scene, it's more like she's slashing at her genitals. And it seems like it's more, it could be like an attack on the divine feminine, on innocence. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that this is like something to say that this is some resistance to Reagan's sexuality. I really don't think we see any of Reagan's sexuality and that she's 12. If she was 14, maybe even 13 and 
a little more, you know, developed and seeming like you said, there was a boy next door she was into and she was saying these things to him. But given the context of everything, I, I don't necessarily think that these are kind of indicators of Reagan sexual awakening. Yeah. Or, I mean, I don't think there was very much sexuality in the entire movie from a romantic standpoint, which is why I don't quite believe in that theory either. It's just the movie felt very asexual. And then Mm -hmm. when sex was introduced, it was only because the demon was using it for their purposes, like calling people the F word that rhymes with maggot or the uh, like saying, fuck me, fuck me. Like it was all very done with intent to harm So I think that's definitely why sexuality was utilized in this movie. And that's also why they didn't use it in other ways. Like the mom doesn't have a fling with somebody in the movie, at least. I don't know. She actively denies that she does. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a brilliant observation in that it was used to harm and to shock. It wasn't used in that she was actually trying to achieve some, you know, ends. She wasn't actually Mm -hmm. trying to get anyone to do anything to her. She's trying to no pleasure, no No. pleasure there. Yeah, no pleasure whatsoever. It was utilized as a tool to elicit a certain response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which young women would not do that with their sexuality. No, and twelve-year-olds definitely not. Yeah, Yeah. I don't like the idea completely of of sexualizing the twelve-year-old. No, I don't don't either. (laughs) Let's not. Yeah, she's talking about Captain Howdy. The way she talks, she's just so innocent. She sounds more like a nine-year-old than a twelve-year-old. So I have trouble with that too. I do think that the movie is more asexual in the sense that maybe as, you know, sexual as it would get would be those scenes where we get Chris before she's introduced to Father Karis, just kind of standing and watching him. We don't know what her Mm -hmm. motivation in doing so, but she might be standing there going, oh, he's a handsome looking priest. I don't know what (laughs) she's thinking, but she seems to be watching him an awful lot and then kind of wondering who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. But there's not the usual, like movies are typically very formulaic in that, you know, by a certain scene, you've got this sexual tension and then there's a kiss Mm -hmm. or there's a sex scene. You don't have that with this movie. It doesn't play out like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the lead lead female of a certain age and the male that is her age usually get together in movies. But we've got a mom and a priest and (laughs) they want nothing to do with each other. It would be a very, very different movie. (laughs) Very different. Uh, Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it, it could have happened in the sense that you could use the fact that, you know, Father Karras was younger and it was easier for him to be, you know, kind of tempted by the mm-hmm. devil, as I use air quotes. But you know what I mean? And so you've got Father Marin, who's the older one. So you could see him falling into temptation, but it would have been an entirely different movie and taken away from the other themes. I think if you would have incorporated sex, yeah. it may not have been as iconic. It could have just been this like kind of bowdy horror movie, you know, where you seduce a priest. Well, Mm -hmm. that's what you were saying is that the movie could be funny. And that's what we were saying that with like sound, if sound was different. So that scene where she's kind of like sizing him up, trying to be like, do I tell this priest that I want an exorcism for my daughter? If the sound on that was in (laughs) any way like flutes or violin, (laughs) tone shift, tone shift. Or when she's watching him like bow chicka bow wow. (laughs) (laughs) But see, it's little choices like that that Mm -hmm. we would have had a completely different movie. And now I'm thinking, how much time do I have this weekend to edit about Chikawawa? (laughs) Exactly. Like it would have been a total comedy if you would have. And like those scenes with Reagan where she's levitating and her face almost looks like it's verging on comical at times. 
So you mm-hmm. change one little thing and it's funny. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, they literally use a dummy instead of her at one point. And like, it's a very good dummy. But if they used slightly different music, I feel like you'd be like, that's, that's not a person. Like, like a corpse doll. sound. So what do you both think is kind of the reason, like in watching, you know, Fear the Devil, the Exorcist documentary, what do you think is the thing that made people like pass out? And, you know, freak out. They kind of like have this visceral reaction to the movie, but then they go watch it again and again. Is it like a roller coaster or what? I think it's kind of like a roller coaster. I think for at the beginning, it was something that nobody had ever really seen before. And the realism of it is very, is to this day, very striking. And I think that the fear that comes with it is a very primal fear. And the images are so realistic that it's been able to stay at this level of it's just a goddamn scary movie, Mm -hmm. Uh, including the medical scenes, because the medical scenes are what actually would make people faint a lot because they were so realistic. And so I think that there's a thrill that comes with it. And I know it definitely is for me, is of of testing yourself almost to see, is this going to keep me up at night? You know? And because when I was younger, when I saw the movie for the first time, when I was like, I think I was like 15 or 16, it was out of morbid curiosity more than anything because I wanted to, I'd seen images online that were so scary and I wanted to see if I could handle the movie. And it turns out at, at 15, I couldn't. Then <laughs> In my twenties now, I see it as art more than I see it as scary. I think too, to your point that the realism is what made people so intrigued by it. I think the first time you watch it, you're shocked by the blood in the hospital scenes and the blood in the crucifix scenes. And the just the entire exorcism part. But the more you watch the movie, the more kind of you pick up on the little nuances about the mm-hmm. priest and about the mom. And I think that's why it's staying powers there because you can get something different out of each time. Because if you're shocked the first time, the second time, you know, it's coming and you can think about, you know, the horror of this little girl. But what do you think, Jules? Yeah, I kind of agree. I think you you really do see the horror of this little girl. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I've just got to say that we've said throughout there's been this this kind of controversy over Linda Blair. And I just have to say, I really think that she did such a great job and that she, she killed it. She really she, did. She did. Like, I mean, I think who was it who won the Oscar? Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moons or something like that? Yeah, mm-hmm. that girl actually apparently smoked cigarettes. So, I mean, give her the Oscar. <laughs> yeah exactly into character <laughs> yeah but I think like when it comes to iconic roles I think she was one of the youngest actresses to win but I do think that Linda Blair really captured the hearts minds and fears kind of everything on a really primal level that we've been driving home as we've been speaking about this such a primal movie and that it really mm-hmm. it's it's hope and fear in kind of equal measures and yeah Linda, Linda Blair is at the heart of this and I do think that she was you know, deserving of an Oscar. I think she captures the horror of Reagan so well. She has another element where without her, if we had any other actress, it could have been funny. Even if you had every single thing else the same, if they couldn't act to the caliber with which Linda, Linda Blair did. did, it would have been bad. Yeah, those so- scenes wouldn't have had the same emotional weight. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. She brings a lot of depth and a lot of maturity for such a young actress. She was a big animal lover. Like, that's one of the things that was hit home a lot is that, like, she's got an animal charity or foundation. I can't remember what it's called, but 
yeah, she's a huge animal lover and she would always be talking about her animals. So I just love that about her because I'm such an animal lover myself. That's so she, she seems like a cool person. Like most of the people who worked on this film seem like cool people. Yeah. When during during her interviews in the documentary, she was like, Yeah, I had a pretty good time. It was rough at times, but overall, good experience. Yeah. Like she was just gung-ho for everything at such a young age. Yeah, she seems incredibly mature. Do either of you know, like I can't think offhand of any of them, but one of you two might know some of the things that kind of led to the film set being called a cursed set? I, I do. Yeah, nine people died nine, during production. Nine deaths were involved. Two of two of them were actors. One of them was the guy who played Burke Dennings, the directors who died. So he died and the mo- the woman who played the mom of Karis died, like the old lady. They died during post-production. They died in the movie before they, they actually died. Weird. Yeah. So that's weird. And so then there were a bunch of other deaths. And then also the entire set caught fire at one point. The set of uh, the house, except for Linda's room. And people say that that's like a scary thing, but I think it's because the room is refrigerated. Just putting that out there. That that's why I didn't catch on fire. But a parallel... Parallel to speak to that just really quickly is in the destruction of the hospital, the Jesuit hospital, where the original Roland Doe, all the rooms were destroyed except for the room where the Mm -hmm. exorcism was performed. So there's an interesting parallel there. Yeah. I think in the documentary, um, he's one of the grips, one of the gaffers, the side people. He hit to his point, which is very, I think, very well put, is that you have a movie that takes 15 months to film bad shit's gonna happen mm-hmm. to everyone involved and some of it may be spooky circumstances but for the most part if you got that much time it's unfortunate but people do die somebody forgets to plug in a light one day and a spark catches on mm-hmm. the highly flammable material so I, I definitely think the hauntings are played up and I I'm the believer I'm yeah. a believer here so the fact that I'm thinking that they played it up just for the movie is saying I find the poltergeist curse to be slightly more believable Mm -hmm. but I also think that shit just happens during a movie can you just tell us really quickly about the poltergeist curse because I'm always (laughs) so interested in curses and cursed movie sets and I'm a believer too I don't think I think some things like the curse of King Tut's tomb you go over enough years enough people are gonna die so some things I don't necessarily believe, but I'm very interested to hear about this one. So can we do a quick sidebar? So the poltergeist curse comes from the poltergeist movie, of course. And I don't know a huge amount, but I know that like most of the people in the original cast died. Like the little girl who says they're coming, she died at age like, I think 14 or something from like a really, really strange uh stomach condition that came out of nowhere and then the girl the older daughter was murdered by her boyfriend like a few months after the first movie and then like I think like the person who played like the psychic died like a lot of the main cast died very quickly after the movie's release and for me what makes it more like sinister is the fact that it was the main cast rather than like a lot of people outside of the cast dying and the reason why people think that there is a curse is because they used real human skeletons during one of the scenes of the movie. Oof, yeah. Yeah, that's really creepy. It's young people involved. So Wikipedia says, <laughs> we know how <laughs> Wikipedia is always accurate. 
It just says the poltergeist curse is a rumored curse attached to the poltergeist trilogy and its crew derived from the deaths of two young cast members in the six years between the releases of the first and third films. This was her only motion picture appearance before her death. And that's a little girl, I guess, who played what? Carol Ann? Was that her name? I think that the little girl actually went on to the other movies. I think it was the, she? the older girl. I could be completely wrong, though. Either way, everyone can Google if they're interested in looking up <laughs> the Poltergeist curse. They Take can look it Google. up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a whole Reddit thread on it. You can read up on it there. <laughs> it's it's a famous curse. So do we have anything else to... No, uh, that's that spooky. We went through that entire movie. We really did. I think we covered kind of <laughs> all the themes and we covered kind of everything. I want to thank Emma and Zelda for being on this special bonus episode where we discussed The Exorcist. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about Across the Veil and where to find you on social media? So you can find Across the Veil anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are on Instagram at across.the.veil and Twitter at Across the Veil. Definitely check them out. And if you want to reach out and say hi, you can find me on Twitter at Podcast Riddle or you can email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. And we'll see you next time across the veil. The veil.